Amen. Now, um, storytelling is an art form that's been with us as long as we've been around. And they don't just provide entertainment. Sometimes they're used to teach their listeners. And the lessons taught vary from the folly of hubris with Icarus from the Greek myths to a commentary on social inequality with Squid Game on Netflix. Now, the impact of this story depends as much on the content of the story as the skill of the storyteller. And sure enough, the Lord Jesus, among many things in his earthly ministry, is a master storyteller. In just 490 words in the ESV translation, he'll tell a story that will go down in history as one of the most shared, most memorable, and painted by the likes of Rembrandt. It's a bold story in the way it defies expectation. Not only is it countercultural, but each and every plot twist in it speaks of the very heart of the Christian faith. What's the story? Well, it's helpful first to have a quick recap of where we are in Luke. So let's look briefly at verses 1 and 2. So it reads here, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So we're in a setting where there's Jesus and two groups of people. We have the Pharisees and the scribes, so the respected public figures of their time. And we have the sinners and tax collectors, people on the other end of the social spectrum. So they're the folks that people would be embarrassed or ashamed to hang out with. And this is the Pharisees and the scribes' critique. Why would this wannabe rabbi hang out with those people? That's what it means to receive and eat with sinners. They ask, why is he giving them attention? Doesn't he know who they are? Well, if you've been with us last week, uh, you'll know that Jesus knew exactly who he's dining with. He also knew his critics. He made them, after all. And last week, Grant gave us a glimpse into God's attitude towards wayward sinners through the first two parables. We are lost, but sought after by him. We are lost, but precious in his sight. So in this third and final chunk of chapter 15, Jesus completes his response to his critics. Through this parable, Jesus teaches that the gospel of grace welcomes the penitent sinner, offends the proud son, and invites the proud son. So let me say that again. The, our heading for this morning is the gospel of grace welcomes the penitent son, pardon me, uh, offends the proud son, and invites the proud son. So here we go. The gospel of grace welcomes the penitent son. Let's briefly remind ourselves the story again. So verse 11 begins with, there was a man who had two sons. So here are the three characters, the father, the firstborn son, and his brother. And immediately drama ensues. The younger says to his father in verse 12, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Here's why this is an outrageous request. You see, all the father's assets are bound up in the land, and it's all going to his sons as his inheritance. So when the younger son asks for his father's his share of the, of the property, he's effectively asking for an inheritance long before his father's dead. In those days, where the, where the father figure in the family is to be revered, this is a grave insult, and it gets worse. Let's read from verse 13 together. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, 
and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Society in this part of the world is far more family oriented. You stick with your mom and dad and you continue their vocation or their business. But as for the son, he isn't interested in a loving relationship with his dad. He simply sees him as a sponsor for the life he seeks, which we're told is reckless living in verse 13. Or in other words, wild, sensuous debauchery. Again, in those days, sons with such aspirations were not treated kindly. Not only will such requests be denied, they risk being disowned. And unusually, though, the father in this parable permits it. A portion of the land was liquidated, and this rascal of a son wanders far away from his family home. But in a very short moment, the son is about to experience what we modern people say, live fast, die young. So let's read from verses 14 and 15 together. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. What began as a gratifying life of indulgence ended up in a pigsty. And for a Jewish boy, being hired as a pig feeder is as desperate as it gets. Except we're told in verse 16 that even then, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. At this dark, dark juncture of his life, far away from the security of his father's home, even pigs had more value than him. There's also here when the empty promises of sin begin to show that the younger son makes a profound introspection. Read with me verses 17 to 19. It says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. Thank you. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, just take a moment and remember who the primary audience is. On the one hand, the sinners and tax collectors, some who might relate to that story. And on the other hand, the Pharisees and the scribes who might be thinking, it serves you right, you fool. It's clear that Jesus meant for the sinners and tax collectors to identify with the younger son. Many have made sinful decisions in life and found themselves helpless from the consequences of it. Their greed, their lusts, and all the evil in their hearts promised so much, yet delivered nothing. They know that they have sinned against heaven, against God. And while the younger son was planning a way back to his family, Jesus' listeners probably thought they knew where this ending would be. Surely the son's getting what he deserves, right? This must be a story of just retribution. As the story goes, the son did as he planned, he went back home, and it's here that we find the first unusual twist to the parable. Let's read again verses 20 to 24. It says, And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, 
bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Stop and think about it a little. What would you do? I mean, for me at least, if I'd been humiliated and then, and then someone dashed off with all of my savings, I'm not sure if I'd be this welcoming without God's help. I'd probably expect quite a bit of groveling from the part of my wrongdoer. At the very least, I'd expect him to pay back what he owes. People of Jesus' day would have demanded at least that much. That would have been the story of just retribution. Instead, here's what Jesus was communicating to his audience. The father's actions, the way he runs after the son instead of waiting for him to grovel his way back, the way he restores him and throws a homecoming party, his actions inform the listeners about God's character. The son realizes that he was in the wrong, turns back from his sinful life and repented. His sins were great, but his father's mercy is greater. What Jesus was implying couldn't be clearer. Nobody is beyond repentance. And with repentance come not merited punishment, but undeserved kindness. During Jesus' day, the religious authorities taught a God who gives up on vile sinners. But the God of the Bible welcomes the penitent to his gracious banquet. Today, though, some of the religious authorities do the opposite. They teach a God that treats sins lightly, who affirms wayward sinners in their sins. But this isn't who the God of the Bible is either. Even in this parable, we see that there's a cost to this son's waywardness. Only, the brunt from his sins fell not on him, but on his father. At the start of the parable, the father didn't just lose a chunk of his assets. He was completely humiliated by his son walking out on him. Everyone he sold the land to knew how dysfunctional his family is. And in that culture, this lack of respect in the household was, a profound, was profoundly insulting to the patriarch. Not only that, in verse 20, we read that while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Again, in that culture, patriarchs hardly ever run. Children come to him, not him, to his children, and certainly not to meet his good-for-nothing son. Yet for the joy of his return, the father picked up his robes and ran. And so we see that the display of the father's love at his returning son was humiliating, and that is bonkers in the ears of his audience. I mean, who on earth would receive his son like that? Well, wait a minute, some of you might be thinking right now, someone being redeemed at a great cost you know, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? And this is how the Apostle Paul would put it. In his letter to the church in Rome, some three decades after Jesus told his parable, in Romans chapter 5, Paul says, from verses 6 to 8, For while we, that is sinners, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, contrary to what we hear today, 
the Bible consistently tells us that sin is a big deal to God. It is so serious that it drives a, relation, a wedge into our relationship with him. And for him to call sinners his sons and daughters, he had to pay the price for our rebellion through Jesus dying for us. And it was humiliating, not just because Jesus was crucified, was naked and battered and jeered by other people. It was humiliating because at that moment, it looked like evil triumphed over good. It looked like Satan had defeated the word of God. Some of you in this room may not call yourselves Christians. Maybe because you were led to believe that you're unredeemable. Something in the past that convinces you that God wouldn't want you at his dinner table. But the Bible tells us that he couldn't be further from that. Today, you can repent like the son did and enter into God's heavenly banquet. He gladly welcomes you. And if that's you, perhaps you'd like to join me in the prayer at the end of the sermon. Or equally, please feel free to grab me afterwards. I'd love to chat or to pray with you. And secondly, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, be refreshed this morning by this parable from our Lord Jesus. Maybe you've come through those doors today weary from work or family dynamics, where people have treated you unkindly. Maybe you're struggling with mental health and you think yourself worthless. And maybe you're suffering with long-term illnesses and you feel inadequate because of your limitations. Now, I don't know any of your background. It could be any of those or a whole host of other things. But this thing I do know, that you are precious in the eyes of the Lord. And you know that because he, you were redeemed at a high price. And as sure as Jesus is resurrected, the banquet in eternity has a seat with your name on it. That is surely something to rejoice and give thanks for. Now, on to the next point. The older son comes into the scene after a day's work, and he heard music and dancing coming from his home. His servant informs him that his brother has returned, and against all odds, he's been alive this whole time, and they're celebrating this occasion with juicy prime steaks. His response, Jesus puts it in verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. In short, the older son was angry over two things. One, that a feast was held for his good-for-nothing brother, and two, he wasn't even in the first to be invited in. And of course, this second act of the parable is meant to provoke the Pharisees and the scribes. They are supposed to identify with the older son, and they would have been outraged at the outcome of the story. But to be fair, though, I think we too might be shocked by the outcome on first hearing. In introducing this second twist to the parable, Jesus is challenging his listeners to rethink about God. Then and now, people are hardwired to think, now if there's a moral God, I ought to do good and to do it the best to my abilities, and then God will surely bless me. The Pharisees and the scribes certainly think like this. They have a presence of piety. They are learned, well-dressed, and very proficient at following rules. They do this not only to look superior in front of those who don't or can't live up to the expectation. They do this with the expectation that God owes them a special seat in heaven for their sacrifice. The Ten Commandments, no problem. I'll do them to the best of my abilities. And if I fail one of them, well, 
I'm sure God wouldn't be too peeved. I mean, look at the other nine that I'm following. Plus, look at all the charity I'm giving to. This is um, works-based righteousness. It's the expectation that God owes us something based on our moral good works. In this story, though, we see a sort of reversal. The good-for-nothing son gets the celebration, but his hard-working older brother is left indignant and uninvited. This is how the father explains it in the parable. From verse 31, he replies to his older son, saying, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Notice that the father doesn't excuse the younger son, saying, oh, it wasn't that bad. Instead, he's saying, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. Why? Because he was dead and is alive. Lost then, now found. What the younger son did was wrong. It was damaging. But the father's joy in the return of his son exceeded and triumphed over the costly pain he had to endure. So it is when sinners draw near to Jesus to learn about repentance and the gospel of grace. As we've heard last week in verse 10, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The instant a wayward sinner repents, his heavenly Father welcomes him and heaven rejoices. To put it differently, God's gracious banquet in the kingdom of heaven is for all who repent. Now, time is against me, so let's move on to our final point. Why then is the older son and his father having this conversation outside? In verse 28, the older son was angry and refused to go in. He rejected the prospect of taking part in this celebration. When his father came out and entreated him, the older son responded in verse 29, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now, in a single reply, the older son has revealed much of his inner posture. On the surface, he's certainly been the good egg. He's always been faithful to his dad and to the family business. And when the younger son left, he even picked up his responsibilities and did double duty. But look at how he speaks of his relationship with his dad in verse 29. These many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. The Greek word to serve here means to serve as a slave. So to the older son, his father is not family, but a taskmaster. And he's not his father's precious son, but a slave. Not only does this imply that he's never enjoyed working with, with his dad, we see that all the diligent work and all the double duty that he volunteered for was transactional after all. To the older son, his obedience made him feel entitled to some kind of reward, some kind of token of appreciation from his father, maybe a goat curry night with his friends. It turns out he too wasn't interested in a loving relationship with his dad. He was also after something. It wasn't money or sex or anything scandalous like that. It was recognition. It was exaltation. Even though he didn't wander very far like his younger brother did, 
Relationally, he was just as distant to his dad, if not further. And I think this is the point Jesus wants his audience to see, that self-righteous morality, while it looks good on the surface, is also rotten at its core. So compare, for example, a rotten egg and a toy apple, a rotten apple and a toy apple in one of those kids' playhouse. So the former is visibly off-putting, while the latter looks pristine and delicious. It's clear that neither are edible, right? In fact, those plastic apples are probably worse for your digestion if you try to eat them. Now, you see, sin isn't just about doing licentious things. It is that, but it's a far deeper problem. It's a heart condition that is inward and not Godward. It pleases and honors the self and not our creator. The Pharisees and the scribes, who by all accounts look like the good guys, they too are needing to repent because they love God's blessing instead of God himself. So it is with us. Where the perpetrator or philanthropist, the heart is evil and naturally turned against God. Again, the Apostle Paul wrote about this condition in Romans chapter 3, in verse 21, where he says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. For the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So whether you have a shameful past or an impressive track record, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Works and self-righteous attitude simply don't count in God's book. Only in repentance, that is, in saying sorry and turning from one's selfish ways, asking for God's forgiveness. Only in repentance will we be righteous before God's eyes. The story ends with a cliffhanger. So let's read again from verse 31. Here the father gives his son, uh, his final plea to the older son, saying, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Here the older son is standing outside after a day's work, and he has a decision to make before the evening comes. Repent for his self-righteous behavior and enter the house of celebration, or remain outside the party in darkness. This is the note Jesus ends the parable on, and it is a masterstroke in storytelling because now the parable comes alive. Now the stakes involve not just the characters in the story, but the listeners themselves. In the Bible, darkness is often used to describe a place of God's judgment, a place void of everything good. Various Bible authors call this place Sheol or Hades, or more familiar to us, hell. In finishing the parable this way, Jesus was graciously extending an invitation out to his opponents that they may safely come into God's kingdom through repentance and not face his judgment. And this is also the note Jesus ends on for those who don't follow him today. It's a somber one, isn't it? If deep down you see an older son in yourself, I'd like to take this moment to appeal to you. There is a God, 
and there is a banquet prepared for those who trust in Jesus. But you can't presume on your invitation on the basis of your good works. None of us can. I pray you'll really reflect on this parable, because look at the outcomes. Remember that the invitation to God's banquet is to those who repent. No other criterion counts, only those who repent. The Bible says there isn't a middle ground. There's a feast and out of this world festivity that goes on to eternity. And there's darkness and judgment. Hell too goes on to eternity. But to the extent of the problem of our sin, that is how great and beautiful the gospel of grace is. God's gracious banquet in the kingdom of heaven is for all who repent. It's time to wrap up now. Uh, if you have any questions off the back of that, please do grab me afterwards. Uh, I'd be delighted to chat. Uh, but for now, let me close with the words from Romans again and a short prayer. So from Romans chapter 3, verse 21. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Father God, thank you for your gracious provision of these words from your son Jesus and for giving us the gospel of grace. As Colin prayed earlier, we're sorry for the ways we've sinned against you and we ask for your forgiveness. We bring nothing to justify ourselves. We only ask that you would forgive us on the basis of Jesus' perfect sacrifice on our behalf. I pray these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.